We're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll read from verse number 1. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, and let's read from the opening verse of the chapter together. The Word of God says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. They that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we now seek thy face. We recognize that this week for many, O oh God, has been filled with sorrow, others with sickness, others with distress and stress. We pray, O oh God, that thou wilt now close us in with thee. We come to the climax, the apex, the very summit of worship, as we now come to meet around the word of the living God. We pray that we may receive the word as from God. Help us, Lord, in this task. Fill me with thy spirit. Come and take my mind. Hush every other thought. Center us upon the word this day. And may the instruction given help and assist us as we live in this world. Lord, come by the Spirit. Minister, apply the word as to where it is needed in every heart and life. For we offer prayer in and through our Savior's wonderful name. Amen and amen. In 1905, Frederick Wells a mine supervisor was making a routine inspection into the premier mine in South Africa whenever he noticed a shiny object just a few feet above his head. 
When he got a little closer, he found, he thought to himself that it was a massive piece of glass. However, whenever he uncovered it, he realized that it was a giant diamond measuring some four inches long, two and a half inches wide, and 2.3 inches deep. When they weighed the diamond, it would become the largest and the heaviest diamond on earth at that time with its 3,106 carats. Imagine having a diamond engagement ring with so many carats. After two years of not knowing what to do with this rarest of jewels, Thomas Cullen, the owner of the mine, sold the diamond to the Transville Colony government for £150,000. In today's money, that's something like £15 million. The Transville government would then later gift that diamond to King Edward VII on his 66th birthday. Realizing that the diamond was too big to put into a crown or some other kind of jewelry, the king then would send it over to Amsterdam to a diamond company called the Asher Diamond Company. After the diamond experts studied the internal structure for quite a number of weeks, Joseph Asher successfully cut the single diamond into nine smaller diamonds. It said that whenever he cut the diamond, he fainted because he was so pleased that it had gone the way that he intended it to go. Two of those diamonds are encased in regalia that belong to the British crown jewels, the royal scepter and the imperial state crown. The Cullen diamonds, as they became known, are priceless due to their rareness, due to their carrot content, and also now with regard to the historical significance that is attached to them as they are connected with the British royal family. As I came to think about these rare jewels, now stored under the highest security measures in the Tower of London, I came to think of a rarer jewel than even them. The jewel I speak of is the one that Paul wrote of here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the verse number 6, when he wrote the words, But godliness with contentment is great gain. And I would surmise and suggest to you, and would apply this to your heart today, to say that the world's rarest jewel is the jewel of contentment. Contentment. Contentment is an undervalued grace. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs in the 17th century wrote a great work on the theme of contentment and he called that particular treatise or that particular book the rare jewel of Christian contentment. In this worship service I want us to consider then this matter of contentment. I've entitled today's message The World's Rarest Jewel. Contentment. Contentment. Our society, 21st century society, is plagued with the disease of discontentment. People are discontent with the cars that they drive. And so every couple of years they go into debt in order to upgrade to the newest model of car. We're discontent with our mobile phones, our electronic devices, so that every season we've got to upgrade to the newest version. People are discontent with their singleness and so fornication is rampant. 
People are discontent with their spouses and so divorce and adultery is rampant. People are discontent with their current jobs and their salaries so that the work world is dominated by a cutthroat atmosphere. The church of Jesus Christ hasn't even managed to keep discontentment from her precincts. People are discontent with its preaching and its teaching. Too much application, some would say. We should be more focusing on the exposition of the word of God. Whilst others will say, not enough application. We need to be told what we're supposed to do with the truth that is being taught. There's a discontentment with regard to the spiritual oversight of the church. The leadership never calls me, never visits me, never pays attention to my needs. Or maybe someone would say, the leadership is too intrusive, always interfering into my life. I believe I would be correct to say then that contentment is the world's rarest jewel because we live in a world that is plagued with a spirit of discontentment. Now before going any further, I believe a definition might be helpful in order for us to understand what contentment truly and really is. I'm informed that the English word content, it comes from a Latin word which simply means satisfied. Satisfied. The word is contentious, and it simply means satisfied. According to Wikipedia, contentment is a state of being where one is satisfied with the state of affairs in one's life as they presently are. Now take that definition and ask yourself today, am I a content person? Am I a content person? The problem with the world's contentment is when their circumstances change. Changing circumstances often causes or results in the person no longer being content. It's all well and good whenever we are in health and whenever the bank balance is in the black. But it's quite a different matter whenever we are found in sickness and we find ourselves with a bank balance in the red, we find ourselves that our state of contentment then moves to a state of discontentment because that is the world's contentment. However, Christian contentment is very much different because that remains despite the changing of one's circumstances. Let me quote a number of godly men and what they said about Christian contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs, I've already mentioned his book. He wrote these words, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me read that a little quicker. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Sinclair Ferguson defined Christian contentment in this way. True contentment means embracing the Lord's will in every aspect of his providence simply because it is his providence. Or Thomas Watson said, contentment is a sweet temper of spirit whereby a Christian carries himself or herself in an equal pose in every condition. Contentment. Christian contentment. 
having thought about what contentment is, and it was very brief, those introductory remarks, let me address you firstly on a number of matters. Or on a number of matters. Firstly, I want to address you on that which militates against contentment. What is it that militates against a spirit of contentment even in our lives? You see, rather than being content, we often find ourselves in a state of discontentment. Now, that is understandable. That's understandable because discontentment is one of the fruits, one of the byproducts of sin. You think of it. You think of those holy angels in heaven. They had all heaven to enjoy. They had the immediate presence and the favor of God to enjoy when they found themselves in their unfallen state. But sin entered in the form of pride and rebellion, head up, headed up obviously by Lucifer, the son of the morning. And yet we find a third of the angels fell from their state. They became discontent with the position that God had given them. Adam and Eve had the Garden of Eden to live in. They had free choice of every, every tree with the exception of one, but they weren't content with that. Sin entered into the heart, and as a result of discontentment, there was the moving against God and the rebelling against God and the partaking off the forbidden fruit. The spirit of discontentment is a byproduct of sin. Ahab at his throne, he had his kingdom, but as long as Naboth's vineyard wasn't his, he remained in a discontented state. He was a covetous individual. We think of Haman, he was the chief favorite of the Persian king. But as long as Mordecai sat in the gate and refused to bow to Mordecai, we find here's a man who was a discontented man. You see, sin brought each of these creatures, whether angelic or whether human, into a state of discontentment. While sin is the root cause of our discontentment, what is it that then militates this virtue against this virtue of contentment? Could I say in the first instance that the world militates against contentment? As I've already mentioned and said, we live in a world that breeds discontentment. We are daily bombarded with messages that to be content in the world we need more things or we need less wrinkles or we need a better holiday destination or we need fewer troubles in our lives. All advertising appeals to a, the spirit of discontentment that now resides in these hearts of ours. The underlying message of any advertising campaign is what you presently have cannot satisfy you because it's not good enough but if you buy our product, then you'll reach a state whereby you are content. You are satisfied. We look at the newest model of car, the latest electronic device, the newest house in the market, the latest autumn winter collection from maybe some fashion designer, and they all appeal to this natural, natural tendency of discontentment that we have within our lives. The world is militant against a spirit of just simple Christian contentment. I read these words from one Christian author as I prepared for the message, and he wrote these words, discontentment may be the greatest trap in our culture. It may be greater than lust, greed, and even lying, because discontentment leads to all 
all these other sins. It tends, he says, to be a wellspring of iniquity. He says, I have yet to meet an individual who engaged in, affair, in an affair without first suffering from discontentment. I have yet to speak with a drunkard, gossiper, liar, or idolater of body, or rest or recreation without them alluding to discontentment. And it feels, he said, like the entire world is colluding to stir up discontentment within us. Every billboard, every commercial, every brochure tends to communicate, you deserve and you need more. The world wants to make us discontent with what we already have. None of us are immune from it. It is the case with you, if you know not Christ, how successful the world is in making you discontent. The spirit of discontentment rises in that life of yours. You'll find yourself endlessly, endlessly pursuing after vain things in the hope that those vain things will bring you into a state of contentment. But all the time you see contentment in worldly things, you bypass the one in whom true contentment is to be found, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, the world wants to make you discontent, to distract you from doing the will of God. In this place, what you'll find yourself is pursuing after that which will never bring true contentment in your life. You'll work more hours to make more money in order to buy more things. And many a meeting will go to the wayside and many a ministry will be forsaken because you have come to swallow the lie that more things equals contentment. But Paul said godliness with contentment is great gain. Not worldliness, not grasping after the things that are in the world, not the possessions, not the fame, not the possessions that are in the world. These things do not bring contentment. God has said through Paul that godliness, godly living, with godliness there's contentment. It comes hand in hand. It cannot be divorced. Don't think that to live a worldly life will bring you into a state of contentment. To do so is going against the clear teaching of Scripture. Paul, by inspiration, says godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. And so, see the world for what it is. See the world for what it is, both sinner and saint. The world is passing away. This is what we're told in 1 John 2 verse 17, that the fashion of this world and the world is passing away. See it for what it is. The world's passing away. In the second instance, the flesh militates against contentment. You see, your flesh will suggest to you that having more things will make you content or that maybe different circumstances will make you content. Maybe living in a different place or going to a different church or having a different job or being surrounded by different people or having a better living environment or having a different life partner. But the problem lies within us whenever we think of this matter of contentment. Our fallen, our sinful nature and our wicked, depraved hearts are naturally covetous, covetous 
And covetousness is that which fuels our discontentment. We'll go into the car park today and we'll see someone's new car. And we'll covet it. And it'll make us discontent with what we have. Or we'll go into someone's home and their new kitchen. They'll bring it at home. And we'll look at our kitchen and we'll think, man's not as modern as theirs. And it'll make you discontent. Or someone else looks at someone else's partner and they look at their own life experience and they become discontent how God has providentially led in their lives until this moment of time. This spirit of discontentment, it's, it's in us. It's part of our fallen nature. It came in by the fall and it remains in us there. To, it arises now and again. We, we're maybe able to triumph over it. We're maybe able to walk past. We're maybe able to close our eyes to what others have. But there's times, certainly, child of God, you have to admit it. There are times whenever we look at our lives and we look at the lives of others and we think, oh, if only I could be in their position. And if only I could have what they have. That's why we sung the hymn, When You Look at Others with their lands and gold. Think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Do you want evidence? Do you want evidence that your discontent and your flesh is discontent? I'll prove it to you. If you've got a family, you cut someone in your family a smaller slice of dessert this afternoon and you'll see the spirit of discontentment. They'll look over. They got more than me. They got more. It's the spirit of discontentment. Or you take someone on holidays and you enjoy holidays and you've done a lot of things. Just one more play park. Just one more play park. It's the spirit of discontentment within our souls. You think of that young person. They open their gift on Christmas morning. It's not the right model of phone. And they huff. Not like their friends. And in that moment they exhibit the spirit of discontentment. You think of an adult who is just constantly purchasing worldly possessions and they are, they are forever exhibiting this fleshly vice of discontentment that resides within our hearts. What's the remedy for it? I'll tell you what the remedy is. The crucified life. The crucified life. The flesh being crucified. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. Yet not I but Christ liveth in me. I'm crucified with him. The flesh. The life of the flesh I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When the flesh is crucified to the world then you'll be dead to the world and all that the world I tell you the world will parade it all out before your eyes. And he'll make it so appealing. And you'll run after it. And in running after that, you can't run after God. Now don't be silly. In the physical realm, you know that whenever a runner is running towards the prize and towards the finish line, he can't run in two directions. And child of God, you'll not be able to run in two directions. You'll either run and pursue after God or you'll run after the world and its possessions. And this spirit of discontentment rises up within us and the flesh is there and the world is there in order to add fuel into it. 
in order to stop us pursuing after God. Now, have you stopped running after God? Have you stopped pursuing God? Have you lost your contentment in God? The flesh. Oh, to die. That's what I need to do. That's what you need to do. It is when we're not crucified to the world. It's whenever we're in love with the world. It's whenever we don't see that everything in the world is going to pass away, that we become discontent in our lives. So we've got the world and we've got the flesh. I and we've got someone else, the devil. Not the devil, the devil. He's the devil. And he militates against contention. Satan himself succumbed to a spirit of discontentment. When he found himself as the son of the morning, as it were the chief angel in heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning, and what happened, sin entered into his heart and he was discontent. And what was he discontent about? God's positioning of him within the angelic host. And so he said to himself, I will ascend into heaven. And I will exalt my throne above the stars of God and I will sit upon the mount of the congregation and in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He wasn't happy with his state, his position, his station. And so he grabbed after, he grasped after Godhead. I will be like the Most High, he said. Is it then any wonder that the one who succumbed himself to a spirit of discontentment that he attempts to make us discontent? He succeeded in whispering into our parents' first ear or our first parents' ears the suggestion that God was holding back something from them whenever he told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is withholding from you and your husband the ability to be as God's knowing good and evil. That suggestion from the devil resulted in discontentment rising up in Eve's heart and, le- and, and led her to disobey God, prohibiting God's prohibition that regarded the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Certainly, sinner, the devil wants to make you discontent. You're endlessly pursuing after that which will never satisfy. It never will. It never will. The wicked one also attempts to disturb the Christian's discontentment in order to distract them from that which truly matters. Oh, to be on our guard against the devil. He's a great disturber of contentment. Did he not do that in David's life? when he found himself out of the battle and he just looked over the battlements of the palace one night and he saw another man's wife and he took her, committed adultery with her. The spirit of discontentment rose up in the man's heart whose heart was after God's heart. Don't think that you cannot succumb to a spirit of discontentment. Having thought about that which militates against contentment, let's think about that then, and this is my final point, that which cultivates contentment. From a prison cell in the city of Rome, the Apostle Paul would write the following to the believers in Philippi, 
In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he wrote, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. The Apostle Paul's words here in Philippians 4, verse 11, reminds us that contentment does not come naturally to us. I've already explained that. The natural disposition of the human heart is that of discontentment. Not happy. Not satisfied. I want more. That's the natural tendency. That's the natural biasness of the human heart. And so this contentment, it needs to be learnt. Mr. Spurgeon said, contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be especially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God has sown in us. God brings us into a state of contentment. As I came to think about the matter then of Christian contentment, I came to ask, well, from where does it arise? What brings the soul into a contented state? Well, the answer to that question, I believe, is surely all that God has recorded for us in his word. When I come to read and when I come to receive and whenever I come to rest upon all that God has said to his children in his word, then true contentment fills my soul. So then what are the truths in Scripture that brings the soul into a contented state and really cultivates this contentment in life? Well, I jotted a few of them down this week and I want to share them with you as I close out the meeting. As a Christian, I come into a contented state in my life when I dwell upon the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. When I dwell upon the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. Jesus Christ the righteous is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 2 verse 1 and 2. You see, the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ is that sacrifice that God the Son offered up to God on behalf of his people. It is by that sacrifice that the wrath of God is turned away from me and thereby I am reconciled to God. You see, since sin is the root cause of our discontentment, then the pardoning of our sin by the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ strikes at the very enemy of our discontentment. The knowledge that my sins are forgiven through the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ leaves then the Christian as a contented individual. Today, I am at peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this afternoon, can you look away to that sacrifice? Is that which has put away your sin? What peace and what assurance and what joy and what victory and what contentment arises from the fact that Christ has put away my sin. Yes, my sin. My filthy, abhorrent, wicked, heinous, grievous sin. He has put my sin away by the sacrifice 
of himself. And in this I rest. I may not have much in this world. And I keep saying, we're only caretakers at the manse. We're only caretakers. I don't have much in this world. But if I have Jesus, Jesus only, I possess a cluster air. If I have Christ, then I have everything. And child of God, you've got everything. Oh, but I don't have this in this world, and I don't have that in this world. But it's all passing away, child of God. You need to see that. It's all going to rust. It's all going to fade. It's all going to be burnt up in the final day. But if you've got Christ, and if you're resting upon that great sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, then you've got all that you need. so I come into a state of contentment I've got I've got Christ and his sacrifice has answered all of the charges that have been brought against me and by that I rest in him and I am satisfied in him and I joy in him and as a result I love him and I serve him because of what he has done for me As a Christian, I come into a contented state when I dwell upon, secondly, my position in Christ. Positionally, all those that are saved by the grace of God are in Christ. This is a terminology, especially of the Apostle Paul. He uses it on numerous occasions, in Christ, in Christ. If any man be in Christ, that's where I am. Positionally today, I am in him. I am said to be seated together in heavenly places In Christ Jesus. That's my position legally. That's my position through the sacrifice of Christ. And from that position, nothing and no one can take me. I'm always there. And I will always be there. All Christians joined to Christ are joined to Christ. It is a union that can never be severed. It is a bond that cannot be broken. It is a grafting in that cannot be altered. It is a positioning that can never be changed. Once in Christ, truly in Christ, then forever in Christ. Now let me ask you the question, don't you tell me that such a truth does not cultivate contentment in that soul of yours today? That this is where I am, in him. Alive in him, my living head is where I am today. My fixed position as one who is in union with Jesus Christ contents me when doubts and fears arise in my mind because from that position I am assured by God that I cannot fall and neither can you, child of God, rest on it. Be satisfied in it. I am in in him. I'm in him today. This is where I am. And in this I'm content. I may not be in the local golf club. I may not be in an inner circle of friends with regard to those who are in government, but I'm in Christ. This is my position. And so when I consider my position in Christ, I learn to be content something else. I learn to be content whenever I consider the possessions that I have from Christ. As I've said, you and I may not have very much of this world's goods. Sure, what about it? 
Think of the treasures that you have in Jesus Christ. What boundless treasures they are. Every Christian, every Christian blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. In Christ there are the riches of justification. There are the riches of sanctification. The riches of consolation. The riches of glorification. Riches that are unsearchable. Riches that are durable. Riches that are incomparable. The riches in Christ Jesus. What contentment fills the soul. Whenever the person understands that their sin, their sins are forgiven, that their place in God's family is secure, yes, that their home in heaven is awaiting them a death, I tell you, no earthly possession comes close to those spiritual possessions that are in Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. Because you see, all your possessions, they can go up and smoke in one night. But these things, they're ours eternally. Those riches, moth and rust and fire and water, cannot touch. They are secure. They are eternal. Content yourself, child of God, that you have enough, in, that you have Christ, that in Christ you have enough for this world and the world that is to come. Remember whenever Esau met Jacob, Genesis 33. I think I preached it many, many years ago, probably now. They met together and Jacob has sent forward the, the various bands and he's trying to appease his, father, or his brother's anger. There had been a split in the family. Favoritism had been shown in the family and that caused problems. She always does. And yet they came back again Jacob returns on the instruction of God himself. Whenever they come back again, Esau will say to Jacob concerning all of these things, he says, I have enough. He wants Jacob to take them all back. He says, I have enough. And then Jacob, he comes and he speaks to his brother and he says, no, he says, I have enough. And you nearly think that the two men are saying the same thing, but they're not. Because what Esau said on that occasion, he says, I have enough. I have enough for time. I have enough for this world. That's what Esau said. But this is what Jacob said. Because Jacob had met with God. And Jacob says, I have enough for time. And I have enough for eternity. His was different. Have you enough for time? Have you enough for eternity? I have enough that's what the contented person says, I have enough. As a Christian, we come into a contented state when I dwell upon the providence of God. The providence of God. One of the most important keys to enjoying true contentment in this world of seeming chaos is an unflinching trust in the absolute sovereignty of God. Life's comforts alongside life's calamities or ordered by a God who sovereignly and providentially governs all the affairs of our life. At the heart of true contentment is a trusting then and a resting upon God's providence. George Lawson said, Christians have unfailing grounds of satisfaction and contentment, for they know that all their affairs are managed by a wise and gracious providence. A.W. Pink said, contentment is being satisfied with the sovereign disposition 
dispensations of God's providence. It was that truth that God had providentially ordered all things in his life that enabled Job to say in Job 13 verse 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job had come to rest on God's providence and he comes to then express that in these words in Job 23, 14. He said, God performeth the thing that is appointed for me. Since it is God who providentially directs our ways and since it is God who has promised to give us just what he knows we need, then we ought to rest satisfied with what we have. Our response to all that befalls us should be this. My lot in life, presently, is what God has determined it to be. And in this, I rest content. My lot in life, presently, is what God has determined it to be. In this, I rest content. You see, all things that happen, both great and small, prosperous, adverse, pleasing, painful, good and evil, come to pass according to God's eternal, immutable, unalterable purpose. Learn this. And you will learn to be content in this world. One last thought. As a Christian, I come into a contented state in my life when I dwell upon the promises of God. Open the word of God and read it for yourself and you'll find therein great and exceeding and precious promises. Promises that are a rich source of contentment for the Christian in whatever station and whatever circumstance they find themselves. The promises of God. There is a word of instruction that is given in Hebrews 13, verse 5, I want to read at the close of the message. Hebrews 13, verse 5, it just says these words, let your conversation or let your manner of living be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. But the unsaved are perpetually in a state of discontentment let us as the children of God learn to be content and then exhibit a spirit of contentment to those discontented souls that we meet from day to day. Because if you do that, you will be radically different than them. For the ungodly live continually in a state of discontentment. But child of God, be content. Be content with lot, your lot in life. Contentment. It's the rarest of all jewels. May every Christian be in possession of it today. And if you're not a Christian, I warn you, I counsel you, that you'll never reach a place of contentment until you find yourself satisfied in God. So come to him, believe in him, rest in him. And thank God you'll be brought to a place of contentment.
May God help us to be brought to such a position for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's pray together. And as we pray, Christian, you pray that God will help you, that God will help the preacher. I tell you, I've sensed a spirit of discontentment rising up in this old heart of mine. May God help me with it. May God help you with it. Our Father in heaven, we come to thee and confess the sin of discontentment. Lord, we confess that we have not obeyed this command in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. We have not been content, but we have lived covetous lives. Lord, we cry to thee for help. Help us, Lord, we pray. We realize that there is much that militates against this contentment. And Lord, we cry to thee, help us to find ourselves in a position whereby we rest content with the things that we have and our lot in life as God has purposed it in his sovereign providential purposes. Guide us, Lord, in this, we pray. How difficult it is to live this out. Easy to preach, difficult to live. So, we pray for grace. Help us, I pray.